You're, you're in Miami. When are you going to use this? But I was one of those guys that was just there, you know, kind of new, hadn't lived there too many years. I think I've only been there about three years. And the FUBU sweaters came out, and I used to rock FUBUs. And I said, oh, man, I've got to get this FUBU sweater. This thing is awesome. Now, granted, I would probably be only to wear it like one or two days in New Orleans, like only one or two days, but I wanted that sweater. Now, here was the thing about that sweater. That sweater was so thick, and it was, it was like something you would want in Chicago, but it was so thick, and it was a turtleneck that went right up to here. I'm not talking like midway. I'm talking like it almost made me stretch my neck to fit that turtleneck on. And here would be the deal. I was waiting to wear that bad boy. I was like, when is it cold enough to put that turtleneck on? And I would look at the weather, and I'd be like, oh, man, it's too warm today. It's too warm. I remember on my birthday, January 19th, one year in New Orleans, having the air conditioning on, okay, just to tell you what it's like down there. And and so literally, I'm waiting for that day. And one day, you know what, the day comes, boom, I can put it on. I'm so excited. But guess what happens? As the day goes on, it gets really, really hot. And and now I am in this sweat sweater, and it is so hot, and then I start to sweat, and what happens? It starts to get itchy, and I want to take it off, but here was the thing. I said, I don't want to wear a shirt underneath it because then it will make it too hot to begin with, so I had no shirt on, and all I had on was this itchy, itchy sweater. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been caught like that at work or a day on your job, and you're just like, I really think I need to wear this, and by the end of the day, you're like, it's so hot. Now, here, here's another example that people can kind of get into and, and, and follow with. I didn't learn this until I with my wife, and so ladies, pay attention if you don't know this trick. Um, sometimes, you know, you wear those pants that are just so tight. You start the day as a skinny mini, and you're just like, oh, I'm going to put on these pants, and like, they're so tight, you get into them, but then what happens? This, I would notice this with my wife. She would have a big lunch, and all of a sudden, it's like that button is about ready to burst, and so this is the trick that she taught me. She took out the hair, uh, the hair, what do you call it, rubber band thing, would take it out, and then she would put it onto her button to extend it, and then loop it through the little button thing. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Ladies, if you don't know that trick, my wife just gave you a beautiful trick, and then like, she could breathe again, you know? because those pants up here were so tight. And let me just give you another example. I was with Ricky and Rachel, and we needed to help me get some new Rick, uh, winter boots, and we were hanging out. And I really love these winter boots, but I'm a, I'm a size 11, but these were a size 10 and a half. But I said, no, I'm going to rock these boots. I'm going to rock these boots. And then I wore them like one time, and then my toes start coming in like this. Come on, ladies, you can probably relate to this. And, and maybe like high heels, your toes are like this. And by the end of the day, all I wanted to do was get out of it. Okay, so whether it's pants, about ready to explode, a sweater that is hot and just sweaty, or whether it's your shoes and you just say, I cannot wait to get out of it. I want you to get this today. That's what it's like getting out of the flesh. And then when you get home, what do you do? You put on that soft wool shirt, a uh, soft wool, that soft cotton shirt. You put on those slippers that fit you, or you just put on those socks that make your feet feel comfortable, or those pants that are stretchy or sweatshirt. You see what it's like. Listen, it's coming out of the sin is like wearing on that wool sweater when it's so hot, and coming into Jesus is like putting on that cotton shirt. It's like going from one place of discomfort and pain to a place of comfort. And here's the concept that I want you guys to get. This is what you were made for. And the world is trying to fit into their flesh and fit into their sinful nature, and they go by the things that seem to come natural to them, but it never fits right. It never feels right. And as time goes on, it becomes 
becomes more uncomfortable, almost like that time when I wore a suit, you know, and it was one size too small for me, but I had gained some weight, but I said, no, I'm going to still wear this suit, and I buttoned up that top button, and it was like I was about ready to explode. You know, it's all of those feelings that we get in this life that remind us we weren't made for this flesh. You were made for more. C.S. Lewis said it like this, when you look around the world and if you can't find your satisfaction, it's because you weren't made for this world. This world won't satisfy. You were made for another world. Another one that said it was Augustine, he said, our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. And then more of a modern version of that is we all have a God-shaped hole on the inside of us that only he can fill. And so when we think about coming into Jesus, it's coming out of something as well. It's coming out of those things that are so uncomfortable, so binding, so just miserable when you get down to it, and coming into something that is comfortable and, it, and it's right. And so now I want to take that idea to a whole other level. Imagine now you've been in the woods uh, with a friend and, and you guys try to explore. You got lost. It's getting late. And all of a sudden, you see off in a distance a, a cabin, and you, sm- you see the smoke coming up from the top of it. What are you going to do? You're going to be like, I'm going to go check this place out. So you go there. You knock on the door, and but nobody's there. The door is unlocked, so you open it. You go in. And now this is where it gets a little bit strange. It looks as if everything was prepared for you to come, though there's nobody there. Let's say you're a coffee or a tea drinker. You get inside, and you see it's the exact coffee or tea that you like hot on the stove. And then you open up the refrigerator and all of the food that you would want to be there is now there. You go into the closet and those same kind of clothes that you would wear on a, on a day to feel comfortable, they're right there in your exact size, even the slippers down to the size of your shoe. You, you, you sit down on the, on the bed and you kick back and you're like, this is exactly the way I like it. This is like Goldilocks in a sense. It's exactly the way I like it. And at that moment, you would know that this is not an accident. It's not an accident. Somebody prepared this for me. Somebody say they prepared it. This is what salvation is like when your soul comes into dwelling with God. You find out that everything you've been looking for is now there in the presence of God. And I'm not talking about surface level things like, oh, I wanted a lot of money and I've become a Christian. I haven't gotten rich yet. No, I'm talking about the deepest desires of your soul. You want to belong. You want to be loved. You want to express your personality in such a way that brings peace to your life. You want relationships to function a certain way, but out there, Outside of that uh, cabin, in this example, outside of Christ, it never works right. It never fits right. But here in this cabin, it all works right. It all fits together. It's been prepared for you. And that's what Jesus says salvation is. And so when we look to the Bible and we see all of these great concepts of salvation, these are not things that were made for somebody else's happiness, and now you're just trying to make it fit for you. These are the things that you were designed to have make you happy. This this is your fulfillment. It's not just Joe came into Christ and now he feels like everything is right in his life. I've tried it. It hasn't worked for me. No, something must have been wrong in what you tried because when you come into Christ, every single one of you, you will find salvation to be the same thing. It is the completion of who you are. 
It's why you were made the way you were made. Oftentimes we get into religion, and religion is just another woolly sweater on a 90-degree day. It doesn't work. It's hot. It's man's opinions. And we may try that and not feel what I'm talking about because it wasn't never, religion was never meant to, to fill this void or to be this place of dwelling. It was actually always Christ. And so when we go back to the beginning in the, the book of Genesis to the creation of Adam and Eve, this is the whole reason why God starts in the beginning creating things. He's creating a world and a universe and a garden. What? For what purpose? Why? So that you and I can dwell with him. That's the whole reason why there was ever a garden, so you could be in union with him. That's the reason why there was ever a son, so that you could be in union with him. And so we can get lost in this universe and think that, you know, maybe God is somehow like looking at the universe as it's gotten off track. It's like he's rolled the bowling ball, and now he's watching it go down the lane and go, oh, no, it's going to be a gutter ball, and he has to come in and somehow rescue that ball as if that he didn't understand this from the beginning. We miss it. The universe was made for our unification with God, for us to dwell with him. When sin came in, it wasn't an accident or an unknown fact to God. God knew it would happen, but he let us make the choice. And so the rescue is not God playing it by ear or winging it. The rescue is actually God restoring it back to the intention. Are you understanding that? And some theologians, they discuss whether or not Jesus would have came in the flesh even if Adam and Eve wouldn't have sinned because that's a deep thought. If you think about it like this, in the beginning, in the garden, Jesus is not in the flesh. Jesus is a disembodied spirit, a non-physical spirit. We have a body and a spirit, but our spirit is not in union with him the same way we are now or will be the day that uh, we're given a resurrected body. So meaning being born again is a unique thing that happens where Christ comes and dwells in us. Adam and Eve did not have that kind of relationship. The glory was probably around them and on them, but not necessarily in them in the same way a born-again Christian has. It's a distinct relationship. I know many of you haven't heard it that way, but as you study more, you'll understand that this is a distinct thing that happens. And so the theologians, that we speculate as we study and we go, maybe if Adam and Eve would have eaten from the tree of knowledge and good of evil, Jesus would have never died on the cross, but still Jesus would have became a man unified with flesh, and then because of that, he would have given us an internal relationship with him like him. But whether or not we, we would have, uh, Jesus would have done that, we don't have to speculate because we sinned. And now Jesus coming into the flesh is not just for our upgrade. Everybody say upgrade. Whether you believe Adam and Eve would have needed an upgrade, we don't, ha we have to speculate. We need the upgrade now. How many believe that? He came for the upgrade. But now watch this. This is where it gets really deep. This is where it gets really deep. God became like one of us so that we can become like God. Think of that depth of that statement just for a moment. Now, by the way, I'm not going off into anything that's heretical. As a matter of fact, our greatest theologians, greatest theologians of the early church, Athanasius, Tertullian, those who actually framed the Trinitarian doctrine, came up with these words, understanding the, uh, the nature of Jesus, all of these things. Do you know that they spoke exactly how I'm speaking right now? 
because they understood that when the eternal word became a man, there was something unique that happened to humanity moving forward. It was as if God now became the stamp that he would stamp out the rest of humanity to be like the initial Jesus, the initial original, rather, would be the, the stamp, and we would be stamped into his image. I want you to see that as we go here into the scriptures. Go with me to Romans chapter uh, 8 and see that Jesus wasn't meant to be unique as God in man, that after he came, many were supposed to have God in man. As a matter of fact, that we were then to be known as his brothers and sisters. Nonetheless, he's still God, we're still man, but look at how we become in what we now know as ontology. Ontology has to do with your nature. For those God foreknew, somebody say he foreknew me. See, remember we talk about that cabin. Somebody put that there for you. He, those he foreknew, he also what? Predestined. What did he predestine you for? To be conformed to the image of his, do you see the beauty of that? God became Man, that man may become godly. Think of that. Jesus is the first one to come into humanity with the fullness of divinity and transform the flesh of a man to become God in the flesh. Then sinners are now given the same relationship without having the uh, the, the divine attributes, but we're given the same relationship with the Father as God in man. Do you get that? Jesus becomes God in man. Now because of that, I'm conformed to the God-man. So what is the ultimate end of man? Is the ultimate end of man to be a disembodied spirit in heaven? No, the ultimate end of man is to be a replication of Jesus, the God-man. We are not gods in the sense that we now possess the attributes of God, but we are godly. Listen to that word, godly. What does that mean, godlike, in the sense we participate in the divine? We participate. Look at this, and I'll show you another scripture. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This is where the theologians began to have a heyday and find the great joy of the incarnation. The incarnation is not just a theological doctrine that applies to Jesus. The incarnation is the first among then many replications in all of believers. Do you see that? Firstborn, firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Well, if you're a brother or sister to your uh, a literal brother or sister, what makes that legitimate? You guys have the same mother and father. You guys now have the same DNA, right? What makes you a sibling to them is the inner DNA code. What makes you a brother or sister to Jesus now? What makes you a brother or sister to him? Not just the Holy Spirit. What makes you a brother or sister to him? No, keep on thinking. I knew I'd lost some of you. Keep on guessing, though. I want to hear some more guesses. Go ahead. The DNA of what? Of God. The DNA of God is now in us. That's literally what it means. Look at it. Uh, trust me, I'm not teaching we become gods. That's not at all what I'm saying. Go to First Peter again. You guys have heard this many times in this church, but I'm so glad that our brother was tracking with that train of thought. Don't just take my word for it. Look at the scriptures. 
Through these, he has given us very great and precious promises. This is the end game. What are the promises? What are the hope for us here now that are born again in him? Where is this ending? This is ending with the sons and daughters of God being revealed. The Bible says all of creation is crying out and groaning for us to be revealed to the world as partakers in the divine nature. The DNA of my father makes me like him. Then if you have the same DNA of my father, that makes us siblings. Jesus was the first one to come God in the flesh. He is unique from us because he has always been God. He himself is God with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But what is now not unique, what is replicated is that divinity Divine nature now intermingles with the human nature. That gets replicated in all born-again people's lives as it was in Jesus. Now think of this. When the steel goes into the fire, and this is how they would explain it. When the steel, the early church fathers, goes into the fire, the fire is a substance unto itself, and so is the steel. They never become each other. But there is a place when the forging happens, when the steel and the fire have an indistinguishable meeting where now they become in union with each other. Still, it is fire and it is, it is steel, but they are now intermingled in union with each other. I'm going to show you a picture of this because I think it will help you. How many want to see a picture of steel in the fire? Many of us don't uh, see steel today uh, in the fire, steel in the fire. But I want to show you what this example looks like. This was one of the most famous uh, uh, examples that the early church fathers would use. When the steel is heated up into the fire, and I want to get a, a picture of it being forged, you will see the glow come around that, um, that, that steel, and you will see that the fire and the steel are indistinguishable from each other. Let me get a great example here. I want to get one that's a little bit more closer up so you guys can see, and I apologize. I didn't have it, uh, have it ready for you, but this is the example that the church fathers would use. I think this was the one I was using before. Exactly. Now, look at this here, and there may be another one here. There's some here. Exactly. This is steel and fire. Let's look at this one. This gives us a great example. It's a little bit pixelated, but the steel is this, you know, like a nail or something. But do you see as it's here? Now, forget the coal. The coal is not the issue here. Imagine if this was just simply pure flame. But as the flame, the heat of the coal reaches the steel, there is a union right there on the surface. There is a union between those two where they become intermingled where the fire is melting the steel, and the fire comes into those melted parts of the steel and becomes literally one with it. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. Chapter 6, verse 17 of 1 Corinthians gives us another one of how to look at this, and I'll go back to the Peter one here in just a second, but 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 says, but whoever is united, everybody say united, Thank you, ever is united with the Lord is one with him where? In spirit. Now go back to that passage. You can just follow along up here in Peter. It says, so through them you may participate in what? 
the divine nature escaping the corruption in the world? Is it important to believe that we escape the corruption of this world? Absolutely. It's important to understand the end game. We love discipleship, but let's remember this. Discipleship is not the end. It's a means to the end. It's a means to the end. Another example that the church fathers would use would be the fire from the sun, and then it's rays that come forth from it. As long as the sun is burning hot, the rays will continue to come, but the rays themselves are not the sun. They are the emanation of the sun. And so the idea is we do not become God, but we become the emanation of God. We do not become one with him, sharing in his divinity in that sense of all-knowing, all-powerful, the creator, but we become one with him in his spirit, sharing the character of who he is. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Let me drop some more scriptures to build the point, and then we'll go back to Ephesians. How many are you having fun? Go to 1 John chapter 3. Go to 1 John chapter 3. It says it in, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Dear friends, we are now children of God. What are we now? Children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. Well, hold on. I just thought we'd go to heaven, and that's it. End of story. No, 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 no. That's just the beginning of the story. You're, you're right now at the introduction of the story. This whole entire life that you're living is all about one of two places, in him, out of him. That's it. Those who come into him get to experience what we're talking about now in this world and then in the world to come have it for eternity. And it is more than what we could ever ask, think, or imagine. So you are now the children of God. That means you have been brought in. You have been adopted. You are now sharing in the divine nature. You are now the steel and the embers of God and the flame of God. You are now participating in the rays of the sun, the emanation of the light of God. But look at what it says. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. Him, not only now inwardly, but outwardly in his resurrected body. We will have the complete image of God in us. This, like I said from the beginning, is not just a restoration to Adam and Eve. This is now an upgrade. Adam and Eve did not even have this. Adam and Eve did not experience this kind of glory. This is a separate glory. And remember, I showed you that at the beginning. The church fathers always discussed what would happen in the upgrade for the Adam and Eve to have this because this is not what they were born with. They were born with a body like ours made of clay, but it was limited to the physical world. Jesus' resurrected body can now walk through walls. Jesus' resurrected body can now ascend and descend to heaven. Jesus' resurrected body has perfect, unlimited knowledge through the, through the complementary nature of the soul and the brain, the soul and the, 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 the brain that he possesses. you got to remember, you're not just a brain. You are a mind with a, with a brain. You use the organ. You're no more a brain than you are a heart, you know, a beating cardiovascular. Organ. And so the glorified body of Jesus was an upgrade from Adam and Eve's body. Are you with me? And so we're born again now. This is amazing. We're restored to relationship, but now we're getting an upgrade as a humanity to something we've never had before. Now, let me just show you that so you can see the upgrade of humanity. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Remember, we've learned this, and I'm going to be hitting on this a little bit today, so it's good that you know. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, talks about what Jesus did when he came. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new what? One new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And the two that he's joined together are Jews and Gentiles. So the whole world comes together in Christ and is made a new humanity. Are you guys ready for the message? Okay, let me get here to the notes. I want to show you the message. When we're looking at in him, this is what Paul means by in him. The terms in Christ Jesus, in the Lord, or in him occur 160 times in Paul's writings, 36 of them in Ephesians alone. I got this out of a study Bible, so you can check it out as well. Here is the definition of in him. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's going to give you some depth. In Christ means that the believer is now united with Jesus through a personal relationship and lives within the realm of his character, influence, and purposes. You see, you're now living in that realm. You are now the steel and the fire of God intermingled with the divine nature, as Peter said. You are now like him, participating in his likeness, in his character. Union with Christ is the Christian's new environment. Go back to that example. You're not living out in the woods anymore. You're inside the house, and this is your new environment. The body you have is now the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God with your spirit is new to this body. It is a literal new environment. You are not the same anymore. Think about just what the body is for a second. It is a shell to your soul and spirit. We believe that when the body dies, the soul goes on because it's a spiritual substance. It's not a physical substance, right? A lot of deep things here, but keep tracking with me. But that is not only a reality when we die. It's a reality when we get born again. There is a new me living on the inside of me. There is a new Joe on the inside of Joe's body. Joe is now intermingled with the Holy Spirit, and there is a new environment that I live in. It's not the scratchy wool sweater. It is a place of the fruit of the Spirit, the peace of the Spirit, the kingdom of God, in other words. Are you guys with me? Look at this in in this study Bible. They did it so well. Everything the believer does is within the context of his or her relationship with Jesus and should reflect his influence and leadership. Do you see how that works now? Think of it again. Before you met Jesus, you could animate your body through your soul. Did you ever think about how unique that is? It literally takes from the time of conception to the time of your consciousness about three years, about a year inside the womb, two years outside of the womb for your conscious and body to cooperate together. I'm learning right now Again, as a new parent, how sensitive my daughter is at six months old to her hand motions and all of these things and to loud noises. And my two-year-old is right to that end of the stage of development where she is now consciously aware of her body and who she is. She can contemplate thought. This shows that we were fearfully and wonderfully made. We download programs and movies all the time, but it took three years for the download of your soul to cooperate in your body. And that's why we believe that at life, Uh, at conception, life begins not when you're aware of yourself and consciousness, but watch this. From that time, you were consciously aware and you could animate your hands and have thoughts, those of us who are healthy. You became used to expressing yourself in that way. And so you became a part of your environment. You learned the language of the environment. You dealt with problems as you learned in your environment. All psychiatrists and psychologists will tell you this. And so that's why I always love laughing at young 
young people and teasing them because they think right now that it's so cool that they like the music that they like. But if they were just born in India, they would be liking Bollywood. And if they would have been born 50 years ago, they would have been doing Chubby Checker. You see, you're just a product of the environment you're in. That's why you speak the language you like. That's why you have the likes that you like. That's why you drink coffee the way you do like Starbucks. If you were in India, you'd be drinking tea. Are you listening? But that, that environment and influence is not the deepest desire of your soul. Those are all just the, the, the ornaments of the tree, as it were. But your soul goes much deeper down into the dirt of this world. And you have longings and you have yearnings. And that's why with separation from God, you try to pursue things to bring satisfaction to your soul. And whether it's education, noble things, marriage, family, or whether it's in noble things like drugs, alcohol, party, and perversion, you begin to identify with your pursuit of happiness. And so you say, well, I'm a race car driver because I race cars and it makes me happy. I'm a homosexual because I'm attracted to the same sex. I'm a gang member. And you identify with these things. And what God is saying is when you become a new creation, those things change. And the deepest desires that you were trying to fulfill on your own, those now are satisfied in Christ. That is the entire purpose of Christianity is the very things I was trying to pursue before I am now seeing fulfilled in Christ. My environment has changed. The roots of my life have been grounded now in Christ and in his love. And what I do to express myself has now changed. It doesn't mean that sometimes I won't sin or act like the old me. But the new me is inside this body expressing the character of Christ. January 19th. 1977, this body was born, right? That's when I was born. My soul was connected to it, and I grew and became a living person who understood myself over time. But November 5th, 1995, Jesus came into me, shared his nature with me, and from that moment, I have literally been a new creation living in an old body. And now, many of you Christians can relate to this, you're yearning to take off this body and put on your heavenly body because this body doesn't match the soul that you now have. You are now afflicted by this body. This body has desires that war against your spirit. And that's what uh, Galatians is talking about. Just turn there with me to Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. This is now what's happening in the Christian's life, is they now have what would be two competing desires. The acts, Let's just go to verse 18 in Galatians chapter 5. It says, oh, sorry, in verse 17, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit, what is contrary to the flesh, they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. How many of you, since being born again, you have really understood there's a conflict between what God is doing on the inside of you in your spirit to what your physical body and brain and emotions and feelings are going through? You know that the Bible says to you, you are in him. You are seated in heavenly places. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing. But that joker who just cut you off in traffic deserves to be cussed out right now. But how is that? How is it you are a new creation, and yet these things seem so real to you? It's because right now you are in 
the valley of the shadow of death. If you would take the Psalm 23 as what all life looks like and reduce it down to the stages of our life and our Christian walk, you are at that place. You are at the place where death has a shadow over you. You live in a body of death, a body that is susceptible to corruption from sickness and disease, the mental life that is susceptible to temptation and evil desires, and then he names them all off. But there is a spiritual life wanting to come forth from the flesh. And the Bible says here, if you live by the Spirit, verse 25, you will keep in step with the Spirit. And in verse 24, it says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So the way we truly live the new life is by counting this old one as being dead. Do you get it? So I'm in him. But what did I have to do to be in him? Put my faith and trust in him and count my old life as dead. To change my position in him, it wasn't a work I did on my own. It was a trust in him, a belief in him. So let's look to Paul and how he uses this. Uh, the introduction is there, and you can continue to read through it on your own. But Paul uses this 36 times in the book of Ephesians. I went through it personally and only found 33. I think the study Bible may refer to a few others that I couldn't find either because they're in Greek or because they count things like in love, and you'll see a few of those. But I listed them all out, and the in him passages are most most prevalent in chapter 1. So I want to read this part of chapter 1 that speaks about us being in him. Count how many times you see in Christ Jesus, in him, in Christ there, and read it out with me whenever we do. And I'll give you a little quiz at the end to see if you can do all of this. Say it with me, count them, and then I'll ask you how many there were in this passage. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful what? In Christ Jesus. Thank you. Now, just think about that for a minute. Let's just pause. i got to stop here. As surely as they were in Ephesus was as surely as they were in Christ Jesus. Both were realities. Body here, Ephesus. Spirit here, heavenly places in Christ. We are not in two places at the same time, but God is. And where God is, heaven is. Heaven is not made heaven because it has streets of gold and cool things up there. Heaven is where Jesus is. So heavenly places is here where Jesus is in me. As surely as their body was sitting in a place called Ephesus, their spirits were united with Jesus in heavenly places. As surely as you're sitting here in Chicago is as surely as those of us who are Christians are seated in Christ Jesus right now. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Thank you. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us, and that may be one of the things they count there is in love, because God is love. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. Sounds familiar to what we sung today, right? Do you know that that last song was written last week? That song that you guys sang at the end there, he captured me with his love. He predestined me. The Lord gave me that, those words right as we were ending the first service last week. I went with Vinny Monday, wrote the whole thing out. You're singing it this Sunday. God has put a great call on our church to write songs that express the spiritual truths of the Bible. Would you pray for us and support us? Amen, because you certainly don't want me singing them. But God's given me a gift of writing them. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us, in the one he loves. Keep reading them with me. Verse 7, 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and under earth and earth under Christ. Verse 11. In him, thank you, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of his will, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When were you put in Christ? When you what? When you believed. Did Jesus drag you in and put you into himself? Was he like an alien, came and possessed you, and then made you do crazy things? When you believed, you came into him. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance unto the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. How many times did it say in Christ, in him? How many? Ten times. Good counting. Ten times. Within just a few verses, we'll be going by these verses verse by verse in the weeks following. Trust me, that's what I'm getting into in the next couple of, of months. But watch this. Paul starts off his whole entire message there talking about you are in him. You are in Christ Jesus. And what do now skeptics say back to us as Christians? They say, why is it Paul never quotes Jesus? If these things are so important, why is it out of Paul's 13 epistles, there's never really any quotations of Jesus? All these gospels have all these stories of Jesus. Paul never talks about Jesus casting the demons out of the man. Jesus, uh, Paul never talks about the attitude, so forth and so on. But see, there's a, a thing that they bring up against the Bible actually shows one of the greatest proofs of the Bible when it comes to Paul. We studied about him, but let me help remind you of some of these things. The first thing that we remember about Paul is that he's a contemporary of Jesus, but when Jesus was on the earth doing his ministry, Jesus, uh, Paul was on the wrong side. He was going after Christians. He was not listening to Jesus. He was against them. He considered what Jesus was doing was a cult. Then Paul gets saved. Now watch this. Paul gets saved before the apostles even write down their gospels. As a matter of fact, in the timeline, Paul is writing letters to the churches before Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John have ever been written. Another interesting fact is that later on in Paul's ministry, his assistant, Luke, compiles his own gospel from the stories of those original disciples so that Paul can hand it out to his church. But at the very beginning, when Paul is writing these letters, more than likely, these gospels have not even been written. But you have to go back to Paul's original story. Paul wasn't a disciple during the time of Jesus. He gets a vision radically transformed, and then he says for three years he receives revelation personally from Jesus. So what kinds of things is Jesus going to reveal to him? Is Jesus going to have the same stories that the Gospels are going to be telling, told to Paul? Paul doesn't need that information. That's already coming. We already know it. But what Paul gets is something very unique. And remember, we talked about this before. He gets a unique revelation of the grace message and Gentile salvation. Now, here is where it gets awesome and interesting at the same time. When Paul begins to use concepts in his writings, they are exactly identical, identi identical to the things of Jesus. 
Remember we just counted 10 times. He said, in Christ, in him. The gospel of John had not even been written yet. Ephesians is being written right around the 40s or 50s. The gospel of John does not get written until 90 AD. But let us go into the gospel of John now in John 15. Let's see if we see anything familiar that Jesus probably would reveal to Paul personally. John 15, 1 and onward. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Everybody say the in me and in you, okay? Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be, be, bear even more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me all, as I also abide in you. No branch by itself can bear fruit. It must abide in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not abide in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you wish and it will be done for you. This is to the Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Verse 9 and onward, as the Father has loved me. Now watch in, in Ephesians, he says, you are rooted, Paul says, rooted and grounded in what? Love, rooted and grounded in what? Love, trust me, I read the book, I'm right, okay? Everybody say with me, you're rooted and grounded in love. What does Jesus say? As the Father has loved me, so so have I loved you. Now abide in my love. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, and abide in his love. I told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. How did Paul understand in him unless Jesus spoke it to him? John was written 30, 40 years later, and here is Paul saying it's all about being in him. It's all about being in Christ. And Jesus used this example. Now you see the compliment of the Bible. Paul receiving special revelation that the disciples had never heard. But when the disciples' revelations start coming out, what they heard, it matches perfectly. How could that have been done without God's intervention? How could a man who hated Christianity be converted to that religion, then get revelations of that religion that confirmed their very writings that came later? That is Jesus. He is telling us the concept in multiple ways and using Paul to help us understand it. And so if we look back with Paul and Jesus and we put it together because it's one Holy Spirit revealing these things, we see that nature itself reveals unity. Nature itself teaches us abiding. And once again, we can get confused here like with G, like with Paul's example of marriage, husband and wife unity. We can, and that's in Ephesians 5, we can almost think to ourselves, well, you know, Jesus is just walking around. He needs an example. He just happens to pick this vine and says, this will be a great example. No, my friends, the very fact that there is a vine is because of the first determination of you to be engrafted into Jesus. The very reason why there is marriage is because God wanted union with you. The entire universe was started with this one thought in mind. I want to be in union with my creation. I will make the apex of my creation man, and though they fall, I will redeem them. I want, in the end, full unity with them. 
And so when he made the world, he made it unified in its subatomic particles. When he made the solar system, he made it unified around the sun. When he made the earth, he made it unified among the different layers of earth and rock and core. When he made vegetation, he made it unified among dirt, air, and water, and photosynthesis. When he wanted there to be fruit from the land, he wanted it to be in unity with vine and branches and leaf. And when he wanted the animals to reproduce, he wanted them to come in unity. When he wanted man to reproduce, he wanted them to come in unity. The entire story of creation is about in him. The entire story. From the subatomic particles to the very things you will eat today, it's always been one illustration to you. Get inside of God. Get connected to your creator. Get connected to him. And so that's where we have to look back at Jesus and go, Jesus, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for me that I am now in you? Because these are the things that you spent the time talking about. It's actually the whole point of his message. The kingdom of God is those he is with and in and ruling through. Those who don't go to the kingdom of God in the end are what? Those who are on the out. I don't want to come in. I don't want him in me, and I don't want to be in him. Do you see that? Those who rule and reign with Christ, what was the difference to those going to hell? They, the ones who rule and reign with Christ said, I want to be in. And so you have to ask yourself this question, do I want to be in or out? It's that simple. Do I want to be in Christ? Do I want to submit my life, the very life he gave me, to be in him? Do I want to share my consciousness with the God consciousness of the word, that I share my thoughts with his thoughts. Literally, the Bible says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be like a scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. And then in another place, it says, set your mind where Christ is in heavenly places. In Colossians, he says that. And in another place in Corinthians, it says, you have the mind of Christ. Do you want to share your mind with his mind? His thoughts with your thoughts. Do you want to share your body with the Holy Spirit? Do you want your body to be a temple of the Holy Spirit, you to become in union with him, become a new creation, and then animate your body still with your will, but you will do it under the will of God. God won't force you to animate your body and do certain things to act a certain way, but he will lead you to act a certain way. Yet at the same time, you are an individual expression of who he is, not becoming like a drop of water dropped in the ocean, dissolving into nothing but God. That's Eastern philosophy. You remain like the vinegar in the water, still of your own substance, but yet you are surrounded, encompassed, into the presence of God, in or out. So when we're dealing with people on the streets and they have all of these reasons why they don't serve God, live for God, it's just, it's just simple. They want out. What is hell? Those who want out. What is, what is the, the rogue thoughts in your mind? The Bible says tear down these thoughts that lift themselves above the knowledge of God. It's thoughts of rebellion. What is sexual perversion? Acts of rebellion. What is murder? Acts of rebellion towards those made in the image of God. We could reduce everything in Christianity to this. You're either in him or you're out of him. It's so simple. And what makes the difference to if I'm in him or if I'm out of him? Is it good works? 
Is it how much I go to church? Is it how much I understand of the Bible? No, the entire point of Christianity from the concept of being born again, what did you do to be born the first time? Did you consummate it? Did you push for your mother? No, you did nothing to be born the first time. The same language is being born again the second time. It is all God. It is all God. But it isn't a rape. It isn't a forcing of the will. It is you saying to God, I want to be a new creation. I want to be a part of the new humanity. I want you in me, and I want to be in you. Look at 1 John chapter 4 before we go back into that scripture there in Romans. Look at 1 John chapter 4. God is love. How many believe God is love? And how many want to dwell in God's love? Amen. I'm going to get to some of the practical applications, but I want you to see how deep this gets. How many are going deep with me today and enjoying this journey? Amen. Uh, amen. This is a great journey to take. Now watch this right here. Verse 7. Dear friends, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been what? Born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is what? God is love. Now watch this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The idea is God initiates it by his love. So we, we've gone through this before as well. God could have made us robots, never had a free will, but then it would have never been love. God is not going to change definitions. God is not a liar. All things that are true now would have been true a thousand years in the past, or a million years in the past. What is always true about love is that love is a choice. God would not make robots because they can't love. God is love. Now, he could not make anything, but he makes free will creatures. Angels have free will. Angels, when they lost their place in heaven, don't get a second chance. Most theologians believe the reason why they don't is because they were born in the presence of God, and that is now the permanent decision that they've made. You were born outside of God's presence, even as Adam and Eve were, and God's presence was brought to you. And so the knowledge of good and evil was a temptation you failed in, but God is merciful to give you another chance. So it seems like those who have much are required much, and that concept would apply to the angels. So thank God we get a second chance at this, and he hasn't left us to our own demises, right? But now understand this. In love, he creates you to love. So what does that require? A choice on your part. We mess that up, so now he has another choice. Does he damn us and let that be the choice that makes that Adam and Eve makes for all of mankind? And some people say, well, I wouldn't be like Adam and Eve. I would have done better. But if he would have restarted every single time, every single time it would have had the same, the same situation. Give them enough time. With their free will, they will sin against you. That's what's going to happen. So what does he do to divert this cause of create, damn, create, damn, everybody individually? He says, here's the deal. I'll let them now, after damnation, after the fall, after the curse, rather, uh, to now make another choice. So the choice is, do I remain in the damned state, condemned to die and suffer an eternal hell, or do I repent and turn back from whence I came for, to my creator? So what compels Jesus to do this with us? It's his love. But watch this. Keep going. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete among us. 
Now, some of you remember this because I've said this oftentimes, but for the sake of time, I'm going to go down to this next part. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Now, do you see that same language? John is writing this as one of the last letters of the Bible. This is 60 years maybe after, uh, maybe 50 years after Paul's written all of his things. And it's the same concepts, but he's introducing to us the concept of love is what really surrounds us being in him or out of him. Now, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment in this world. We are like Jesus. So why do I have confidence that one day I will be totally conformed to his image is because right now the image has already happened in here. That's what I'm confident of. I'm like him now. Does everybody get that? I'm like him now. He's in me now. And so what does perfect love do? It drives out my fears that I'm going to mess this up, that it's going to go bad for me, that, I, you know, because I'm not good enough. So my fears of failing God are driven out by the very love that brought me in. So what am I having faith in? That's why we sing this song, and there's that bridge there. I believe in your love. What are you really putting faith in today? A big creator in the sky that makes stuff? Uh, somebody that's going to send you to hell unless you say you're sorry for your sins? Is that what the Bible calls true faith? True faith is in who he is. And who is he? He is love. So those who are in him are those who love him. And those who stay in him and don't go to unbelief are those who believe that they are loved by him. So when does unbelief come in? We lose a loved one. We say, God, how could you let this happen? I love this person. Why have you taken them from me? And now we start to doubt God. We lose our job. God, I needed this job. I needed this friend. I needed this uh, house, and I've lost it. I don't have it. And so our disconnection to things or people causes us to think God doesn't love us. And where is the lie of the devil there? The lie of the devil says there's no God. It doesn't work. It might have worked for someone if there is even a God, but it doesn't work for you. And so the devil wants to draw you out through your feelings and have them turn towards unbelief. But what does the person do? who truly serves God and loves God. They say, despite what I feel, I believe that he still loves me. Despite what I feel, he still loves me. The man that was in prison, remember I talked about him in Siberia suffering? He can't remember Bible verses anymore. He can't remember songs. He even grew up singing. He has to make up his own song. What is his song about? The love of God has melted the ice of Siberia. He sings about the love of God. What will keep you in your hardest times? is you believing in the love of God. What keeps me in him is his love. Now, I don't have time to go through that scripture again, but you remember it from last week. But this is what I want to do now is end it with these practical things that we can do to really see ourselves in the love of God. I want to give you the first one. Everybody say believe. Thank you. The first one that we can do is actually believe. We can believe that today everything that the Bible says is what it's true. We can say, I believe I am one with God in my spirit right now. You can believe that. That's really what salvation is. Now, I'm not saying everybody who gets saved has to understand the depth of what I'm going at here. You're talking about a man who has traveled to the depths of this over 20 years. This is my greatest uh, study. I mean, this is what I give my life to. This is the joy of my heart. Okay? But the, the, it doesn't matter if you don't have it all down. But to the newborn Christian, if they are to be a sincere Christian, they must believe that Christianity is a unification with them in God. 
the very least, I am now born into the family of God, and God is with me. How many of you have heard the scripture, he'll never leave me nor forsake me? Now do you understand why? Because he is literally in you. He's in the substance of who you are. Remember, liquids can mix together. Now they may not dissolve into each other, but they can mix together. Solids and liquids, not so much. They can be around each other, upon each other, but not necessarily intermingle with each other. God's spirit is in you because you are spirit. They can intermingle. That was another concept that these theologians would talk about, intermingling, not dissolving, but intermingling. God has unified himself with your spirit. The next thing that you need to do is you need to start confessing it. I find when I let feelings become my confessions that I feel further and further away from God. So I start off doubting that I'm close to God because of what I'm feeling. Then I start saying I don't feel close to God. Then I start feeling further and further away from God. When I start to sense, even in my hardest times, that I draw closer to God is when I ignore my feelings and say what the Word of God says while believing it. By confessing the Word of God, I actually draw nearer to the revelation of who God is. Here's the thing. As a Christian, does God ever leave you? No, he doesn't. Can you leave him? That's what backsliding is. That's what being cut off is. But does he ever leave you? So when we think about, I'm going to get closer to God, and that's okay, we use that language at times, is that really the language of the Scripture? The draw near to God that he may draw near to you in James is given to the sinner. Draw near to him. He'll come to you. Knock, and the door will be answered. These are ideas for the unbeliever to engage with God. Now the believer, if I'm drawing near to God, it's not that God is further away now. If I'm, getting, if I'm using that language, all it simply means is I'm acknowledging God more. The drawing is actually not like God's like five miles away. Like some days like I feel like God's like a football length away. And then other days I feel like God's like 10 miles away. And then other times God's a marathon away. And I'm going to get closer. I'm going to run after God. That's not the biblical language. The biblical language is you've never been closer to God than you are right now. If you don't believe that, that is the problem. It's the stinking thinking. The heart cry is, God, let me know you're closer than the air I breathe. God, remove from me the doubt that says you are far away. I acknowledge that you are here with me now. Do you see the difference? One is saying, God, you're way over there, and I'm going to get to you one day. The other one says, God, you may feel over there, but I know you're here with me right now. Let's confess this together on the count of three. One, two, three. Christ is in me, and I am in him. I am seated with him in heavenly places, blessed with every spiritual blessing. I am united with Jesus in my spirit and am holy, complete, and perfect in him. Try to put that into your religious pipe and smoke it, right? The idea is religion doesn't teach you that, but that's what we all need. Here's the idea. You need to now pray for the understanding. All, everybody say all. Every single one of our failings in Christ are a failing of understanding being in him. Every single one of them. Every single one of them. Every time you or I have sinned has always been because of the breakdown of us believing that Christ is in me. 
It's exactly like that. Think of it. You're driving down the highway. You're going a little fast. You see the speed limit, 55. You don't stop. You keep going. But all of a sudden, you see the boys in blue, highway patrol on the side of the road. What do you do now? You put on your brake. The reality sets in. I'm breaking the speed limit. Here, that's the example of religion. What is the example of relationship? You got into the car with the police officer. Everywhere you drive, the police officer is with you. That changes the way you drive, doesn't it? Every time you and I sin, it's because we don't believe he is with us or we don't believe the word that he has said will be, you know, enacted. Like, it's all about not believing in who he is. It's not believing in his word. It's not taking what he said serious. We're saying, ah, maybe he meant it um, a different way, you know. But if he was there, you know you wouldn't do that. If you were looking right at him, you wouldn't do it because you know better. You know better. And so where, where's, where's my sin come from? Where do my thoughts of sin come from? A place of me thinking God's not watching. God's not here. That God's not going to see this thought. I'm, I, I deserve this. I deserve this thought. I deserve a little pleasure this way. I deserve, I deserve this kind of sin. And God won't see it. I'm not thinking on God. But if I always have the meditation of my heart on the Lord and his presence, I could never enjoy that. That would never be pleasurable to me. I could never cheat on my wife with her being there. If there was ever a day, God forbid, that I would cheat on my wife, it would be away from her, would it not? Every day when you and I sin, it's because we believe we're away from him. We're not accepting the reality. He's right there with us. So what should we pray? Look at what Paul said further in in chapter 1. He said, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now watch this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. See, don't let Buddha take away enlightenment from us. Enlightenment comes from Jesus, that you may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in, in his holy people. Am I waiting for an inheritance that's out there like streets of gold? Is that what I'm really waiting for? I'm waiting for something in here, right? The glorification of my body uniting with what God has done in my soul and spirit. And so there's three ways of enlightenment according to the Bible. Write them down so you don't forget them. Contemplation, meditation, and imagination. I dare some of you to take this seriously this week. Rachel, would you come in closing? I dare some of you to take this serious this week, that if I contemplate on this thought that Christ is in me and I am in him, that I will actually grow in my understanding. See, look at the two things he says there. He says, I pray that you may know him better, but I also pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. The knowing is a simple knowledge. I'll know you better as I learn more about you. That's, that's what I think a lot of Christians do well at. But I think we struggle at the eyes of our heart opening. So I can study, I can study, I can study, and God's word will always bring light to my soul. Don't get me wrong. The word of God is what brings light. But what opens the eyes of my heart? Think of this, all of you have been serving the Lord for a little bit. What opens actually the eyes of your heart? I believe it's those three things contemplation. It's when you take what you have learned and you really start to digest it through your personal life. You contemplate it. What does it mean to be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to be angry? You contemplate. 
as I was a young Christian, the Lord would do this with me naturally. Obviously, many of you have gone through, you didn't have the words, right? Now you do contemplation. I would start to think, oh, that time I lost my temper. I wasn't quick to listen and slow to speak as I contemplated it. See, I couldn't just run through that scripture and not take it serious. I had to come to a reality of it. The eyes of my heart, the emotional part of me, my soul, needed to expand so I could see God in me. I prayed for the eyes of my heart to be open for the lost. And as a pastor, I was always just about right or wrong. You know, I don't know if you guys can imagine that, but I was kind of a meanie sometimes, right? That'd be hard to imagine. But God opened up the eyes of my heart as I contemplated hell. I contemplated hell. I don't want them to go there. So I want to reason with them. I just keep screaming at them. I'm not reasoning with them. Jesus reasoned with the people. It says that he reasoned with them. It was a key concept to how he preached. It was a reason behind what he was doing. He gave parables. And so contemplation. Another thing you could just look at is all of you who, who say, I can't do something that God's asking me to do. Let's say God's asking you to be a disciple, whatever. Contemplate the command. Would God ask me to do something I can't do? Let's say, you know, sex before marriage. Oh, I can't do that. That is impossible. Contemplate it. Paul says, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart get open. I'm praying that too. Here's how you do it. You contemplate. Second thing is, is you meditate. You start to take the words of God very serious. You say, today I'm just going to spend time memorizing the scripture and I'm going to think on it. I don't need yoga pants. I don't need uh, the crooked chicken pose. I don't have to do mantras. But I'm going to meditate today. May the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O oh God. And I did this as a parent with the word of gentleness. Everybody say Gentleness. This was the word the Lord gave me. I started meditating on it. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. You can't meditate on that and be angry at the same time, can you? You can't. You really, you can't. And then the third thing is imagination. Why is it we think imagination is only for winning the lottery? We're like, oh, I'm going to win the lottery, or I'm going to get married, or I'm going to do this. When was the last time you imagined yourself different than the way you are now? When was the last time you imagined God doing something different than what you're seeing now? When was the last time you imagined that? Imagine those things. The power of your imagination is all back towards in Him. He gave that to you for a reason. Remember we talked about that? These young people have a vivid imagination, and what happens? They begin to lose it. They lose it over time, and we become adults. Why did we lose our imagination? Because we imagine things the wrong way. Childlike faith is beautiful, but it's not always placed in the right thing. Watch this. Very simple. You say, Pastor, it's easy for you to imagine things. You're a pastor. You can apply what you imagine to your job every day. But I'm a plumber. How can I imagine God's glory in this? This, this doesn't make any sense. When I was a kid, I imagined being a race car driver. What am I supposed to do? Just have childish thoughts of being a race car driver? No, watch. Catch it or you'll miss it. And you'll lose the power of enlightening your heart. When you imagine as a child the race car driver, what was it that captured your heart? We say, I'll drive fast. I was, you know, in a car and people were watching and all those things. Okay, go one, go one more level deeper. Don't just stop there. What was it about the car? 
What was it about going fast? What was it about these things? You reduce every one of childhood adventures, a childhood imaginations down to what they are in their deepest level. Every video game these young people play. What is it all saying? I want to be somewhere doing something I'm not doing now. I want to be someone I'm not now. I want to be a cowboy, riding a cowboy, a horse. I'm not a cowboy, there's not a horse. You talk to a cowboy who rides a horse every day, he wants to be in the big city flying a plane. The imagination was always used for this. I'm somebody who I'm not, pretending to do something that I don't do. Do you get that? Put that towards everything you do in life now. As a plumber, I want to imagine myself doing this and changing the world. Doing this and making a difference because when I do this, it has more power than just cranking a knob. I'm helping the people do X, Y, and Z today, shower, whatever. You, you, you superimpose, like almost like a filter onto everything you do is I will see this from God's perspective and to the people I'm affecting, you will see the power of your imagination has never gone away and the excitement of it has never gone away. It is just you misplaced it. You wake up tomorrow, don't worship coffee and don't curse Monday. You wake up tomorrow with an imagination in your heart. God is twisting wrenches with me. God is pleased with me here. I am displaying his glory to those that I'm around. You will enjoy what you do tomorrow. That's how the eyes of your heart are opened up. And then I spent a little bit more time on contemplation, talking about the mind of Christ. And there's two, uh, three kinds of contemplation, but really two major ones, concrete and abstract. And then lastly, God can give you ecstatic dreams and visions. How many believe in spiritual dreams and visions? I don't believe we have to go to sweatshops to get them or sweat, you know, tents, whatever, the, the Native American way or do peyote. But God can show up and do these things. But here's a real quick thing of concrete and abstract with the mind of Christ. So Jesus obviously had something in mind when he told you that, he is the door. He said, I am the door. I am the gate. Those who come through me enter into pasture. That is the concrete example that he gives you. The abstract of that is to imagine it in your everyday life. Where is the door of Jesus? Where is the door of the Lord that I'm walking through every day finding good pasture? Even if today you were in a concentration camp, you would still say, God, where is the door I can walk through in this jail cell to find your pasture? Do you get it? Concrete, abstract, taking the thoughts of God and applying them daily to what you're thinking about the mind of Christ. And then lastly comes the action. I'm going to do things. Now see how he presents the doing things. Let's just see. Just get out there and do stuff for Jesus because you better. You don't do it. You're going to go to hell. Is that what it says? Watch this. You were taught with the regard to your former way of life, that old wool sweater, to take it off, your old self, which is being corrupted. It don't feel right anyway by its deceitful desires. And to be made new in the attitude of your mind. Go ahead and put on that college jersey that you've had since 1996. Literally, I got a college jersey shirt since like 1996 or 98 that my friend gave me from North Central Bible College. And there's no shirt that feels like that shirt. Take off the old, put on the new, keep going. You are to be made new in the attitudes of your mind. So where is this transformation happening? Literally, it's in my mind, isn't it? and to put on the new self. And where is the new self? It's in my soul, my spirit. And how was it created? Created to be like who? 
Put on the new self, which is created to be like what? Like God in what? True righteousness and holiness. Therefore, therefore now you must stop lying. Therefore speak truth to one another. Therefore don't let there be a hint of sexual immorality. Okay, there goes the list. But where does it come from? A new mind. Believing I've been created in righteousness and holiness. So remember we started off with this idea. Jesus became what I was so I could become what he is. God became man that man might become godly. Let's look at this in closing and pray. God the Son joined himself to the human nature that we might be joined to his divine nature. I am in him today. For those God predestined, he foreknew to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Would you stand up with me, please? Can we give Jesus a hand clap for us? I am so excited about you living this. Altar workers and band, would you come? Let's ask Jesus to make this real in our heart. Three kinds of people praying right now. Those who are not born again, pray to be born again. Those who are already born again, ask God if there's any sin in your life, get rid of it. And then thirdly, those who know they're born again without sin, start to ask the Lord to use you this week to live it out, to put forth what God has told you.